Stompers. Made me think of uh, the Lone Star Church of Christ outside of Neosho, Missouri. Little bitty church, uh, old church building um, where my grandpa used to preach occasionally and just good old wooden floors and get some of the Lone Star Church of Christ. Yeah. So, Texas, you don't have a monopoly over Lone Star, right? Or maybe it's franchised. There are Texas roots. I don't know. It's Lone Star Church of Christ. There's also the Huddle Springs Church of Christ on the other side of town, which is another tiny little churches you've never heard of, but good people. I'm actually not sure, sure that Lone Star is there anymore. I'm sure the building is there, but it may be something else now. Um, but it's good to be here. Um, one of the cool things that I think being part of the body of Christ is you get to hear stories about how God is at work and and just neat stuff happened. I've heard, by the way, I've been hearing all sorts of stories about people going out to help with the tornado relief, and tornado is a terrible thing. That we can be the hands and feet of Jesus is a beautiful thing, and I think there's a pause in the work right now as we wait to hear what more we can do, but so many of you have been out there uh, doing so much to help out, in, especially in the Garland area. Um, Today there was, and I, I don't know that these folks want, want me to share names or anything, so I won't, but today one of our members uh, had a victory over cancer party after uh, battle and surgery and cancer, and so just a celebration with, with some of her Christian family and her biological family, victory over cancer, and just giving all glory for that to God. And then yesterday, it's just neat these stories you hear, but uh, one of our members, a, um, a young lady was just sharing with me, she's going to take a few weeks off of work because she's, she's got an opportunity to donate a kidney. And she, she said, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I've always wanted to, to donate a kidney. Um, it's amazing what God puts on people's hearts, right? Or on their kidneys, I guess. But um, she's got an opportunity. There's a match. I was like, so do you know this person? She's like, well, I've met the person, a 42-year-old guy. That, so she's essentially going to save this guy's life. And, and I think it's just amazing. have to take a little bit of time off work. But, but some, you know, in some cases, we have... Uh, folks like Amy Willis and, and, and Chuck and Emily who, you know, moved to Africa. God calls them t- to Africa. Um, most of the time he calls us to, to work where we are, you know, and to just look for opportunities to honor him and glorify him and serve and love on people. And I love hearing those stories. And I think that that's all a pretty good backdrop for tonight as we begin to look at the story of Nehemiah who cared very much about people and cared very much about a certain situation we'll talk about tonight. So, Powerful Prayers continues with Nehemiah. Uh, His story is found in the book of Nehemiah. Um, Historically, so our Old Testaments are not organized in chronological order. Historically, the book of Nehemiah is the last book. Okay, you've got probably, uh, Daniel is in there too, but Nehemiah would be the closest in terms of a timeline, Nehemiah, the happenings in that book, to the book of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament. Now, there is a a period of about four centuries of silence there separating the Old and New Testament era. And unless you're a Catholic who has the apocryphal books there in the middle, for us, we have four centuries there of silence between Nehemiah and what God did there and the birth of Jesus in in the book of of Matthew and the opening of the New Testament. Um, so the story of Nehemiah is going to end somewhere from 400 to 410 BC. The book of Matthew picks up probably uh, four or five AD, or, or uh, yeah, four or five, um, yeah, around then. So his story, Nehemiah's story, 
is regarded as an account of the life of one of the greatest leaders in the Bible, um, in both Old Testament and New Testament. Um, what else really could you say about a person who was, who was called and who was burdened and who was passionate and who was willing to take risks and was so focused as a leader that he was able to inspire and organize a band of people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. Impressive, very impressive. Um, now, it would have been easy enough for Nehemiah, before all of that happened, it would have been easy enough, really, for him to have been a rather forgettable figure, um, at least historically speaking. He had a great job. He had a comfortable life. Um, things were really set up nicely for him and for his family. He was the cup-bearer for the king of Persia. Um, if he had never left that role to follow this calling to ministry, uh, this burden on his heart, he could have taken care of himself, had a great life, taken care of his family, no problem, but that wasn't the road that he chose. In fact, as the story opens up, he's not really anyone all that noteworthy. Uh, interesting job there is the cupbearer to the king. Um, but he is identified in the first verse of the book as Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So he's the, it, his identification is just, here's how he's different from all of the other Nehemiahs. He's Hakaliah's boy. Okay? Um, so just enough to distinguish him. And then as the story progresses, um, we learn he's cupbearer. And in the most minimal sense, uh, the cupbearer would have been responsible for the safety of the king, the safety of the royal court, to ensure that all of the food and drink that they consumed was safe. No one was going to, uh, to be able to poison the king. Um, this would have been uh, also accompanied with some significant managerial duties. A lot of food, a lot of food preparation was under his um, purview. Later in his, in his life story, we learn in, in Jeremiah or Jeremiah, in Nehemiah 10, verse 1, he became governor, okay? So he's managing affairs there in Judah, uh, where he ends up. Um, so it's important to start with Nehemiah, um, not just with um, the amazing things he comp accomplished, um, but with just this description, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, um, another Jewish person born in exile, far away from home, far away from Israel and Judah. Um, the whole nation was living in this state of exile. Very few um, remained behind. His story, though, is, is unique from all of the other great, you know, the Hall of Fame, the Canton, Ohio of Bible leaders, let's say, the Hall of Fame of biblical leaders. Um, his story is, is, is rather unique. Um, because with so many of the great men and women who were leaders in the Bible, who did amazing things in the history of God's people, you have this supernatural calling, this miraculous God moment where the Lord appears or the Lord calls them in a, in a rather spectacular sort of way. Um, with Abraham, God spoke to Abraham. Hey, Abraham, <laughs> he talked to him and revealed these extraordinary promises about the future and how he would turn 
this man Abram into Abraham, the father of many. Um, With Joseph, of course, you've got these extraordinary dreams that God gives Joseph as a young man. Um, With Moses, a burning bush. With David, um, as a boy, he is anointed by Samuel, the prophet. You will be king of Israel. Esther is elevated to the status of royalty, becomes part of the royal family. Mary receives a visit from an angel, from Gabriel. Um, Paul gets a vision from the Lord on the road to Damascus. So these are some of the people we think of as great figures and great leaders in, in the pages of Scripture. Nehemiah, just a regular guy. Um, no special previews, no amazing promises, uh, no supernatural expectations laid out by the Lord for him. And I don't know about you, but th- that kind of draws me to him. Kind of attracts me to him and his story. Um, he seems to have been a lot like us in many respects. Good job, uh, relatively comfortable life, um, like regular believers. Uh, he struggled to work out what it meant to be a God follower in his context, in his job, in his city, in the place where he worked and lived. To How do I respond to the Lord's agenda here? Um, he thought through where he was. He thought through what he might be able to accomplish for the Lord. He prayed through um, the calling that he sensed in his heart, and he ended out uh, ended up stepping out in faith in a pretty dramatic way that we'll talk about tonight and risking, risking all of that comfort, all of that stability um, of, of his past life and his good job and everything, risking all of that to do something great in partnership with Yahweh. So he is, Nehemiah, he is one of the most accessible, I guess you could say, stories um, for us because he was just a regular person. If the Lord can work through Nehemiah, the Lord can work through us as well. The reality is that even the women and the men in the Bible who received these um, exceptional, dramatic, miraculous calls from God or these amazing glimpses from God of their future, they too, they too were regular people, right? I mean, they had their flaws. They had their weaknesses as well, Um, The Peters and the Pauls and the Marys, they were regular people. Um, And they show us that they show us that availability for people of faith, availability is more important than ability. Okay. Are you open to allowing God to use you or not? That's more important than your talents, your gifts, your money, your resources. God enables the called. He does not call the able. He enables the called. He does not call the able. So as the book opens, um, a book which is a personal firsthand, almost his diary, okay? Personal firsthand account from Nehemiah. As the book opens, he is the cupbearer for the king of Persia. Um, While this could be translated as the butler, or this could be translated as the chief um, servant, It was a role of great responsibility in the ancient world. On a daily basis, 
among his duties would have been the tasting of the food and drink before the king, uh, before it would be served to the king and the royal family. And that meant each day, think about that, each day he was literally risking his life for the sake of his master. Um, the role in the Persian court was one that put him also close to the king, put him in close proximity to the power brokers of this nation of Persia, um, a position of unique influence, unique opportunity. And one of the principles that I think resonates most um, from his story for regular folks like us is that principle of bloom where you are planted. Don't just daydream, well, uh, if God will move me over here, if God will give me a promotion, then... I'll really begin to serve the Lord. Or if I can get that job out in L.A. or that job overseas, then, no, bloom where you're planted. Be faithful where you find yourself. That's how his story starts. He's working hard. He's diligent. He's responsible right where he finds himself in this job in the royal court there in Persia. Instead of just kind of wasting away, daydreaming of greatness, uh, under, he understood that God had put him where he was and that being faithful to God started in his current situation. Um, so if you want for the Lord to use you, then like Nehemiah, the first thing to do is, is that. It's bloom where you're planted. Be faithful and fruitful where God has placed you. Um, then leave the rest to God. God will honor that. Um, so Nehemiah, we can, I think, surmise or assume uh, responsibly that he was a hard worker. I think we can assume that he was a person known for being responsible for getting the job done. The king of Persia wouldn't have ever promoted him up through the ranks if he hadn't been that sort of person. And so then, in addition to just kind of, okay, I'm here, um, this is my role, in addition to that, he's attentive. Okay? He believes in God, and he believes that God is at work in the world. And so he is watching, and he's looking for how God will call him to partner with him in new or different ways. So we meet Nehemiah as the book opens up in a, in a situation where he has just received devastating news to him. It may be hard for us to fully understand the emotional impact, but for him, for a, a God-fearing Jew of that time, far away from home, and it may not even be a home they had ever been to or seen, but Jerusalem is home. Jerusalem is the center of the universe for the Jewish world. The news he got was devastating when he's told in verses 2 to 3 by one of his brothers who had been down to Judah around Jerusalem. He was told that the city of Jerusalem was in bad, bad shape. Okay, um, It wasn't fully a broken down ghost town, but it was really close to that. It, I, I think of images of bombed out Berlin after World War II. Um, a shell of what it was, a city in shambles. The walls of the city are knocked down. It means it's totally unprotect unprotected, not just from invaders, but from all sorts of, of wild animals and stuff that are just traipsing around through the city. Very few people remain, uh, are, re are residing in the city of Jerusalem at this point. 
Um, it's not what it was. Kind of like Detroit, Michigan. No, okay, that's not fair. All right. Anyway, that was very unfair. So sorry if you're from Michigan. Detroit's a great place. Um, but this is where we really have to try to put ourselves, I think, to get where this story kind of comes from as far as his burden, his concern. We have to try to put ourselves in his shoes a little bit. Jerusalem was, as I said, the center of the Jewish universe. It all was, it always has been, it always will be. It's more than just a city, more than just a capital city, more than just an important city in their history. Um, it is interwoven into the fabric of what it means culturally, religiously, to be, socially to be a Jew. So when Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is devastated and in ruin, he is devastated. He's wrecked emotionally. Um, Verse 4 of chapter 1, he records these words for us. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted. And prayed before the God of heaven. That's his burden. That's what breaks his heart. And I believe that ministry very often flows out of what breaks your heart. We have different hearts. There are different things that trouble us. Um, Different concerns that we have. That's good. God made us each to be different. He was burdened by, by that news. And what had happened to Jerusalem? What burdens you? What, what causes you to have a sleepless night? Ministry very often flows out of that. Something that's happened to you or happened to your family or something you just care about. You just can't drive past a family sleeping under a bridge and not feel something maybe. I don't know. Nehemiah was wrecked after hearing the news about the state of affairs back in Judah and this burden, this hurt, it stirred him to begin dreaming of a ministry, if you will, or a project or a mission. So Nehemiah is again, he's in the service of the king of Persia. He can't just, hey, I've got, I got a bunch of vacation days saved up. I'm out of here. He can't, that's not an option for him. He can't say, Um, I'm announcing my retirement. You didn't do that. I'd like the gold watch, get my pension, retire back in Judah. Um, He can't just do that, but he feels like he needs to do something. Um, He senses this burden on his heart, um, and it begins to take shape. I need to make sure the walls of the city get built. I need to make sure that Jerusalem can, can begin the, the journey toward being restored to its former glory. Um, but one way or another, all of those ideas and roads, he realizes, are going to run through his boss, his earthly boss. Um, one way or another the king is going to have to be involved in this, is going to have to buy into this. Um, So, he doesn't just waltz right in, right? He begins praying. Lots of praying. 
day prayers, night prayers, all kind of prayers, fasting, uh, mourning. Um, he knows that he needs a move of God in order to make his vision a reality. So let's pick it up in chapter 1, verses 5 to 11 with an example of the prayer. He prayed a lot of prayers, but he writes this one down. So we can, I think, assume a lot of his prayers probably had elements of this one. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses if you, are, uh, if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. He's saying, we're living that right now. We've been scattered. We're exiled. We're far away from home. If you are unfaithful to me, God said, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. So he's reminding God, isn't he, of those words. Verse 10, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today um, by making the king favorable to me. If you have a King James, I think that says, Grant me favor today. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. So let's just kind of walk through the elements of that prayer. By the way, I don't think there is a formula that you have to follow um, I'm not even sure that it, it is a good idea to have a, a formula that, okay, I need to do A, B, C, D, and then God answers the prayer. I don't think it works that way. But I think we can learn something from the different elements that we see in this prayer and that maybe some of the things we need to be um, putting into our own prayer life. The first thing, of course, in verse 5 is this adoration, this profession of praise. Um, God is God. Um, if he's not, then prayer is just Speaking into the wind. It doesn't accomplish anything, but Nehemiah understands there is a king who is greater than the king of Persia. Um, that the king of Persia answers to the king in heaven. And so he says in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Um, and then there is this kind of interesting, isn't it? Very quickly he gets into this confession of guilt, this pouring out of, of his his own anguish over the sins of the people and himself. He expresses how he and his family haven't lived up to the Lord's expectations or instructions. I don't know exactly what, what that was, but he knew what it was. The Lord knew what it was. Um, why does that matter? Well, it matters for Nehemiah and for us <laughs> because when we pray, we need to not only know who God is, that profession of praise, you're God, you're awesome, you're great, but we need to know who we are. I don't show up before the throne of God with a bunch of bargaining chips, okay? I don't show up for a negotiation, right? I'm going to kind of do this deal with God. I show up with nothing. 
I'm a sinner. Um, you're sinners. My family, we're sinners. Um, we show up empty-handed before God. Um, so we're not bargaining. We exist because of God's mercy. And if anything good happens to us today or from now on, it's because of his mercy. It's because of his favor. It's because of his grace. And so a confession of sin and guilt, I think it naturally follows. Really, I think it very naturally follows after you adore God and recognize who he is. Because you're kind of just recognizing who you are. Um, that you're not worthy of anything. You're not worthy of an answer from the Lord. You're not pleading based on your own merit, based on your own righteousness. And if there is an answer from the Lord, it's because of His heart and His goodness, um, His power, not yours, not mine. And then I like that He, he does recall the instructions um, God has revealed his will. And Nehemiah doesn't, it's not like this is coming out of the blue. I mean, he knows what God's will is. God's people understood that they just hadn't been following it. And so in verses 8 and 9, there's this recollection of what God had revealed to Moses and Moses had revealed to the people. Um, ordinances and decrees that we would call maybe the law of Moses in the Old Testament. So when we come before God, as believers, we recognize we have the Word of God. We have the Scriptures. We have the Bible. Um, we're not flying blind. We're coming into this. We know, uh, we know with great specificity what God wants for us, what His will actually is. And then, this is interesting. Don't miss this in the prayer. This is easy to miss. In verse 11, though, he also recognizes the king's authority. Not God the king, but the king of Persia. He recognizes that this human being has authority, that God is going to need to move in the heart of this person in order for his passion, his vision for ministry to, to come to fruition. And I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting, um, that he needs for God's favor to extend to favor granted to him by the king, by his boss. Um, verse 11 he says, put it in his heart to be kind to me. Finally, ver, uh, the next one is this petition at the end of the prayer for God to move. Verse 11. Um, so we have this, this one prayer recorded for us, but we know that there were many, many prayers coming uh, regularly before the Lord from Nehemiah's heart because um, we know he's praying and he's watching. Okay, God, show me something here. When is, the, when is the moment going to be right? Um, so chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Early the following spring. So, look guys, I mean, time is passing here. I mean, I don't know that you could say he's not in a hurry, but he certainly doesn't want to rush God's timetable. So time is passing. He's praying. He's hurting over this ministry burden on his heart early the following spring in the month of Nisan before uh, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes reign I was serving the king his wine I had never appeared sad in his presence so the king asked now that doesn't mean he'd never been sad okay part of the job when you're serving the king is you don't appear sad. You, you don't have the right to bring down the king. 
He's got all the burdens and responsibilities of the kingdom. You don't get to come in with your personal burdens, okay? So part of the job is you put on a happy face, okay? I'd never appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And you've probably heard this before. We don't need to explore all this. But, it, but in the ancient world, it was a dangerous thing to come before the king. Sad. Dangerous thing. A risky thing. Um, under his employee, it wasn't acceptable to do anything or say anything that would potentially upset the king. Um, Nehemiah, though, he, I don't think it's an act here. He can't hide it. He's trying to do his job as well as he, he knows how to do. But he has been deeply, emotionally affected by the news. I mean, there are sleepless nights, you know. And they're trying his best here. But he's obviously anguished, and the king notices that. Um, and he obviously respects his loyal servant. Because he says, why, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? This is the moment, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Nehemiah realizes this is what I've been praying for. This is what I've been waiting for. I know I have no right to bring this up before the king, but now he's inviting. He's inviting me to share. This is the moment. He's faithfully served the king. He's bloomed where he's been planted He's been responsible. He's worked hard. He's done his job. Uh, also, he's got his relationship with the Lord. He's been praying. He's been looking for God to show him the way forward because of this burden on his heart. And this is the time. Verses 3 and 4. I replied, Nehemiah writes, I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? So, this is the moment, right? It's time for the big ask. Um, he knows that all of his prayer has been leading up to this moment in time. If the king is not favorable to his request, then he'll just go back to serving day after day, spend the remainder of his days there in the house of Artaxerxes, um, testing the food and performing his duties responsibly. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. With a prayer to the God of heaven... I replied, he's been asked, what, what do you want me to do? I replied with a prayer to the God of heaven, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. That's kind of one of those cool verses in the Bible right there, that first verse we just read. I mean, one of those that you really want to go, wait, did I, did I, did I read that right? All of this prayer has been going on, and then it says he gets asked the question, and with a prayer to the God of heaven, don't skip over that. So is he 
putting his hands together and falling to his knees and praying? Is he raising his hands? Is he... No. Are his lips moving? Is he saying anything? I don't think so. But he's praying, right? It's one of those... I just kind of imagine... We don't know exactly how... I just kind of imagine a... He knows, the, he knows the gravity of the moment. It's just that deep breath. And in that sigh, it's like, here we go, Lord. Here we go. So he said, if it please the king and if you're pleased with me, send me to rebuild the city. The ask, help me. Help me rebuild the city. Verses 7 and 8. I also said to the king... So he's not done with that, which is, hey, let me leave. Let me go. But he says, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors because the king ruled all of these different old nation states. The king of Persia was now in charge. Send me letters to all these, these leaders and the governors, the provinces west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on the way to Judah. <sighs> he's not done yet. And also, please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the, of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Now that's just audacious, isn't it? I mean, he can sense... This is the moment. This is what I've been praying for. God has opened this door of opportunity. The king is favorable. The king is interested. Why are you so sad? So he goes big. Um, Not only does he ask to be released, let me go, let me travel, um, send letters to protect me, but he says, oh, by the way, can you provide the building supplies as well? But I feel like an infomercial here because... That's not all. (laughs) Verse 9. When I came to the governors of the province east of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. A company of soldiers to protect him. Sent by the king of Persia. So we're going to kind of wrap this up. Obviously, there's a lot. And as I was studying this this week, I'm thinking, okay, we need, to, we need to do a series on the book of Nehemiah soon because this book is so good. But this is where we're going to kind of wrap up tonight, just with this prayer and his launch into ministry, God granting his favor um, before the king and, and this amazing beginning to a ministry. And yes, he re- rebuilds the walls of the city of Jerusalem and it begins to flourish once again. But to conclude, just a few takeaways. When I think about my prayer life, when I think about your prayer life, what I think we can for sure learn from Nehemiah, for starters, I will pray constantly. Remember 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Pray without ceasing. Or the NIV, pray constant or continually. Um, He's praying day. He's praying night. He's praying when his lips are moving. He's praying when he's taking a deep breath before he talks to the king. He is always praying. He trusts in the Lord. The second thing I think we learn from his story is when we pray, we're praying to a big God, aren't we? So we can pray for big things. Um, Don't be afraid to ask God for something big. Maybe God is waiting on you to ask him for something big. Um, 
He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to depend on Him. And He wants you to know that that blessing or that opportunity is from Him. Um, don't also know that God can change hearts. God can work in hearts. God can grant you favor. God can, can set up a situation where, where someone will treat you with favor, with kindness. But again, what I come back to with this story, um, what I keep coming back to is how it all starts with this pain, with this burden, with the sadness in his heart. And everything else happens after that. And so with that, I came across a prayer recently about the power of the power of being burdened I think would be the way to put it and it's a prayer by Sir Francis Drake famous explorer uh, naval pioneer of the Elizabethan Elizabethan era that's a hard word to say listen to this prayer disturb us Lord when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Amen. Let's be standing tonight and let's respond to the Lord as we worship.